You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Um, Christmas is here. You notice we've decorated here. Maybe you've decorated at your house. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you picked your tree out. Maybe it's still in a box in the garage. I don't know where it's at. But Christmas is here, and we are here to celebrate that. Um, and just as a quick survey, how many of y'all have purchased at least half of the gifts Christmas presents that you're supposed to purchase? Well, there's a couple. Maybe. How, how, who has purchased everything so far? Anybody? Oh, we got a couple hands back there. Wow, those are some people that are ahead of the curve. You can either like rejoice for them or like kind of sneer over them, whatever you want to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's December. And so it is here because you already had Black Friday. It means you had Cyber Monday, which you had Giving Tuesday, which brings along Weeping Wednesday. I guess that's the day you get the credit card or you balance the checkbook and go, what in the world did I do on those days? Um, and just so you know, there's 21 days and 12 hours left, all right, approximately in like maybe half, 12 and a half hours uh, before Christmas Day. So if, you, if you're not the 50% or 100% purchase, you you got to get on it. Um, just some more shopping fun. We're going to kind of go through some gifts that were highlighted in different decades and different years. And if you uh, maybe received this gift or maybe you gave this gift to one of your kids, uh, we'll see if any of these identify with you. In 1970, it was the Nerf ball had finally came out and the talking Viewmaster. All right, I remember having a Viewmaster. I don't remember if it talked or not. Um, 1973, Evil Knievel Stunt Cycle. All right, I see some hands of people have that. Good. 1975 was the classic and all-time best, Pet Rock. All right. Um, 77, some electronics start getting in here. Atari 2600, Star Wars, and Stretch Armstrong. Um, 80, Rubik's Cube. 83, Care Bears. Those were popular for a while. This is one of the ones I have a good fond childhood memory. 1985 was the Teddy Rupskin. Basically, it's this stuffed bear that you put a cassette tech that tape. Yeah, it's just like they're not CDs. They're not digital. You don't download. You put a tape inside its back, close it, and hit play, and the mouth would move along with the stories that it would tell. Teddy Rupskin. And then if you were really well off, which I end up being lucky, um, there's like there was like this extra expansion doll of sorts. I don't remember what it was. You like plug into it, but that's a whole nother story. Uh, 1989, Nintendo Game Boy. 95 was Beanie Baby Craze. You even got those in Happy Meals. Like you get in a little plastic bag and you're happy. So you're some, you see some uh, heads nodding back there. 1996, Tickle Me Elmo. I'm not going to talk about that. 2002 was the Apple iPod. So we kind of get in that digital generation. And 2006 was a Nintendo Wii. So I don't know what this year's hot gift is, um, but that's kind of some history of the past of that. Um, there's a certain amount of commercialism and chaos with purchasing and deadlines and timelines and what's popular and what not that goes along with Christmas. We've all seen that. We're all part of that. Um, and, but then there comes this tension saying, hey, that's the way the world works. And you've got to participate with it a little bit. You, you, your kids want certain things. Your family's expecting certain things. But when you go back to the Word, you're like, man, this is really supposed to be about Jesus. This is supposed to be about bringing in this holiday about God with this Emmanuel. There's a light in the world as we're lighting candles. That's what this is supposed to be about. So at First ABQ, that's what we're really, really pushed towards as, uh, on Sundays and all of our celebrations that come to Christ, trying to keep Christ the focus on everything we do. It matches our mission statement that we want to follow Jesus. 
And Jesus is the reason for all the things that we do. And each Sunday we're going to be lighting a candle. This week is hope. Um, it's kind of the theme of that. And it really it's about talking about the hope of the prophets. And the prophets preached of a coming Messiah. Someone who would come in and usher in God's kingdom for the nation of Israel. And they had this hope that this would come. A hope of a Messiah. Hope of restoration. But to better understand what the nation of Israel might have been experiencing and why they so desperately needed a Messiah, we're going to go through a little bit of history of stuff that happened with the nation of Israel. Some of these are in the Bible and some of these are happened after the Bible, the Old Testament was completed. There's a period of a 400 year gap, generally, that there's no kind of scripture for a period. And so some of the details are going to come out in that period. So going back to something that did happen in the Bible was the Babylonian exile. Israel was, had a lot of issues. They kept on worshiping false gods. So God had warned them, hey, if you don't get your act together, a, a neighboring country is going to come, on, come in and take over. And that's exactly what uh, Babylon did. They came in, captured Judea, captured the city of Jerusalem, and that was in 597. Eventually, they got to return back to their homeland. Um, Zerubbabel, uh, Nehemiah came in. Those are key figures that in different droves and different stages, they came back to Jerusalem rebuilt the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and they had their own country again. But that was short-lived. In came a figure named Alexander the Great. In 333 B.C., he came in and conquered uh, Judea, Jerusalem as well. And Alexander the Great was a really, really influential person. He conquered so much of the world, but not only was he a conqueror, he brought in Greek thought, Greek influences and Greek religion into the areas that they conquered and set up these little Greek city-states. And that's exactly what happened to Judea. Um, so there's a couple of rulers that happened with that. After Alexander the Great died, his kingdom got split up. And so uh, the uh, Ptolemies came in and they ruled over Judea for a period of time. And then the Seleucids came in later on about 198 B.C. and took over. And before you totally tune me out, it gets interesting. Here's where it gets interesting, all right? Here we go. Um, Antiochus the Great came in. And then once, once he came in, there was started to be these bidding wars at different points in the story about people who would basically pay money and bribe to be the high priest of the temple. It's really weird to me because it's almost like someone paying a lot of money, bribing their way to become the pope of the Catholic Church. It's a similar feel. It's like they, they, it wasn't about religion. It wasn't about faith. It wasn't about, you know, following God. It was about power. It was about control. And that's what these individuals would do. They would bribe the Greek government and other people to get appointed to be high priest. And so later on when this happens, essentially the hereditary nature of what was supposed to be the high priest got eliminated because it went to the highest bidder. It wasn't about who was in the line of Aaron and Phineas. It was about who had the most power and control and money. And so this happened multiple times back and forth. And eventually the Jewish people got really frustrated with this. And so they started having these many revolts and these power struggles. And then um, Antiochus IV came in and he said, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm done with the fighting and bickering of who's going to be in charge. And you don't like this high priest or not. So he came down really hard on the people. He prohibited circumcision. He prohibited worship on the Sabbath, which are two big things for the Jewish people. And he also prohibited all the dietary laws that they were trying to follow. He set up pagan altars in, all throughout Judea rather than worshiping the God at the temple. 
And ultimately, um, this led to the ultimate blasphemy where he set up an idol of Zeus, which is a Greek god, in the temple. And the nation of Israel's the main thing is, Hero Israel, our Lord, our God, is one. And to have, to have a false idol, a false god in their temple was really, really bad. Ten days later, a pig, which is, once again, an unclean animal, was sacrificed on the altar. And as you know about history, once you oppress a type of people, a group of people, over time, over time, over time, they eventually revolt. And that's exactly what happened. Um, through the Maccabees, or maybe known as the Hasmonean uh, dynasty, uh, a group of uh, a family basically said, hey, we're going to lead a charge to get our nation back, to get our temple back. First one was uh, Mattathias. He came in, um, he led a revolt and was kind of partially successful, but then later passed away. But his sons continued the, the, the cause. Judas came in. Um, he continued. Um, he ultimately was able to conquer and get back into the temple. He brought in priests and cleaned out all the false stuff, all the false idols, and set up a sacrifice to the Lord our God again. And lit a, a candle and a part of a menorah, and they had an eight-day celebration and some of us may know that as the season of Hanukkah. But this shows the importance of what the Israelite people were striving for. It was a big deal to have someone of their people, their race, their country, their religion, to be in like a high priest in a ruling position and have control of their temple. And you're going to hear these words through your words a lot. King, temple, and high priest. That's what they wanted. They wanted to have those things for those, their, their, their own people. And that's what these, this family was fighting for. But because they were still had this Greek influences coming in and other countries fighting back and forth and, and where Judea was stationed, it was like a high traffic area. Everyone wanted power of this area. And so even though this family had some successes in gaining back their culture, gaining back Certain, at certain periods of time, control of the temple, their worship, and even maybe a, a governor or ruling king, they had corruption. One of the guys, I'll, I'll mention off a couple of these, um, that uh, Simon, one of Matthias' son, um, he was ended up murdered by his son-in-law at a banquet where he had probably had too much to drink. John Hieronicus uh, is a rumor that he paid mercenaries by plundering the tomb of King David. He also um, forced conversion and circumcision on certain regions that he conquered. Uh, an, another guy later on after him, um, Aristotelus, um, he was the first one to take the title of king despite not being in the line and lineage of King David. But to get his power... See, when, when John Hieronicus passed away, he said, I, I want my wife to be ruler afterwards. Um... But his son didn't want that to happen, so he imprisoned his mom and his brother so he could be in charge. That shows the corruption that's kind of happening here. Another guy later on, Alexander, um, Janius, uh, he was leading the Feast of Tabernacles, and some of the worshipers didn't like him because he was corrupt and wasn't had the right heart. So they were saying, hey, we don't want you in charge, we don't like that. So they kind of revolting a little bit and insulting him, and his response was uh, ordering mercenaries to killing the crowd, killing approximately 6,000 Jewish worshipers. Later on, he prosecuted the Pharisees. In the quote here, it says, while he drank and caroused with concubines, 
he had 800 of the Pharisees crucified and also their wives and their children killed as well. And I paint this picture to show that even though these people were striving to have their own king, their own high priest and be in charge of the temple, there was so much corruption and backbiting and fighting and politically maneuvering happening at this time. And ultimately, we get to the point where the Roman occupation comes in. Pompey comes in, um, and later on, you get the story where Herod the Great is the ruler. And he expands the temple, kind of revitalizes, and that's why it's known as Herod's Temple at this point. And that's where the point we get to the picture of Jesus. So why are we going through all these random historical facts about Israel? Is to help paint a picture of what the people of Israel were hoping for. They were going through a really rough time. Their country was in shambles. They had no official leader. And even when they did get an official leader, they would end up being corrupt and killing and backbiting or they were paying money to get what they want or aligning with political leaders they didn't agree with. They had no stability. Even Herod the Great, they didn't even think he was the rightful ruler or place because he was put in power by the Roman Empire. They were struggling. They had hope for a better tomorrow. They wanted to be in charge of their own land and rule themselves, but they were constantly being conquered and pushed around by the great empires of their time. So that paints us a picture of what they were hoping for. They were ultimately hoping for a Messiah. They were hoping for someone, for a king to rule, specifically someone of the line and lineage of David, because he was promised to always have a ruler over the nation. They wanted a temple to worship. Since Exodus, the tabernacle and the temple had always been there, a place that they can go and offer sacrifices to get forgiveness for their sins. And they wanted a high priest to intercede for them. Someone to lead them and to be kind of a go-between between the people and God. And the, this tension, they couldn't get these things because they were constantly being pushed around. As we lit the candle today, the verse that was read paints a perfect picture of where Israel was at this time. The people were walking in darkness. And the next couple lines below that, on those living in the land of deep darkness. They were wanting that light, the light of a Messiah to come in and help them restore all the things that were broken in their nations, in their homes, and in their personal lives. They wanted to see a great light. They wanted to have that experience of a new light dawning in their lives. They wanted someone to have the government, to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. That's what their hope was for. Their hope was having God send someone to bring restoration to them. To bring them out of all this chaos that they've been living in. And that is the hope of Christmas. Is that... We know who that person is. We know that person is Jesus Christ. We know that person came in and brought restoration because Hebrews 2.17 says he was the priest. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. And he did that by his sacrifice on the cross. Hebrews 4.14 continues this thought, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Jesus was also the king. Nicodemus recognizes early on in Jesus' ministry, and John records this. He says, Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. 
You are the king of Israel, Jesus said. You believe this because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Even his death on the cross, Pilate had this inscription written that says, King of the Jews, and he placed it above Jesus when he was being crucified. And John 19 records this. He said, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate. Do not write, King of the Jews, they said. But that has been claimed to be king of the Jews. But Pilate replied to them, I have, What I have written, I have written. So early on in his ministry and even later, he was identified as the king. And that's when we also read through all the, the narratives of the early life of Jesus. That's why they list the chronological, uh, chronolo- chron- chron- I can't get that word out, chronology of Jesus' birth line. To show that he was from the line and lineage of David, the one who was promised to always have a king in place to rule over Israel. Later on, we also realize that Jesus is the temple. So there's the high priest, he's the king, he's the temple. John 2, 18-22 says, The Jews then respond to him saying, What sign can you show us? Do you have authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. Then then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So we see that he fulfilled all three of those roles. He was the high priest. He was the king, and he himself was the temple. He is that hope. But not everyone believed. People in Jesus' ministry didn't believe. People didn't believe after resurrection. People still don't believe today that he fulfills those three roles. And it's interesting to know that Jesus' own family, while he was on earth, didn't believe that Jesus was fulfilling those roles we learn early on in Mark 3, um, talks about Jesus and his interaction with his brothers, um, that Jesus uh, was thought to be beside himself. And Mark 3, 21 says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that when he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So it was just so crammed in, they couldn't even get to the, you know, food to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they had said, He is out of his mind. That's his family. His own family thought that he was crazy. Like literally out of his mind. Not like the literally figurative, you know, thing that literally is really confusing nowadays. Sometimes it means literally something and sometimes it means, well, maybe not figuratively, literally. But they thought he was crazy. They thought he was completely out of his mind. And the Bible lists later on that Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, sometimes called Judas. Um, but those are the four brothers. And so it says that they thought he was out of his mind. Matthew 12 has a similar account. While Jesus was walking in the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak with him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. 
He replied to them, this is Jesus saying this, Who is my brother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sisters, and mothers. So Jesus even identified that his brothers weren't in alignment with his ministry. They weren't in alignment with believing that he was the Messiah. He's like, you know what? These people are not following the will of my Father. The people who are my brothers and sisters are people who are following God. The people that are following Jesus. Later on, um, another story comes in play. And I was thinking about this. It's like, there's this conflict, and James and, and the brothers, the other brothers of Jesus, are not involved. They're not connected. They they're clearly think that Jesus is either crazy or not believing everything he's saying. We finally get to the crucifixion, and they're not there either. They're not present at the crucifixion. And not only are they not present at the crucifixion, they're not present to even comfort and guide their own mother. Because... Jesus' mother, the, you know, James and, and the rest of the, their mother, was going through probably the most difficult thing a mother can go through. Watching your son being displayed on a cross as capital punishment. James is recorded not even being there to comfort his mother. So much so that John, in John 19, records this. He says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. This is at the crucifixion. His mother's sister... Mary, the wife of uh, Cephas, Clephas, um, I never can say that word right, and Mary Magdalene. And Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son to the disciple. Here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. So Jesus recognized that his mother, who is kneeling at the cross, James was not there to comfort her. He had to assign an, essentially an adopted brother of the disciple of John to help her out in her time of need. James wasn't present. So we get a pretty clear picture of where James stood. He's either thinking Jesus is crazy or he's not present at all or a myriad of other things that we can just kind of guess at. But he, was, he wasn't actively involved, and he wasn't there, and he thought he was crazy. They didn't believe that he was the Lord, he was their king, he was their Messiah. He didn't believe any of that. They thought he was crazy. Even when Jesus' life was on the line, he was not present at the cross. But then something, as you kind of go through Scripture, you get that the gospel accounts, and then you, the next book in the Bible after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is Acts. And that kind of describes what happens with the church and everything else after Jesus. But Acts starts off with a little bit of Jesus. Jesus is there. He interacts a little bit. And then in verse 9, he goes up into heaven. He's like, I'm going to come back. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, we find this. The apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill they called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All those people I listed are just the normal kind of 11 disciples that we know that were kind of apostles that followed around with Jesus. And I know you heard James a couple of times in there. 
But that's not James, the brother of Jesus. Real quick, there's James and John, they're brothers, the sons of Zebedee. So that's one of the James. There's another James that's listed as James, the son of Alphaeus. So that's James number two. But his dad was Alphaeus, so that had to be a different James. Also, there's Judas, son of James, but that's not James as the brother of Jesus again. So we have all these James confusing. But those are the 11 sons. It's not James. Keeps on going. Um, they all join together consistently, uh, constantly in prayer, along with the woman and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. James, Jesus' brothers are now hanging out, praying with the disciples. So what, what happened? James over here and all the other brothers were saying, he's out of his mind, he's crazy, he's not doing the, I, we just don't believe anything he's saying. So much so that they're not even present at the cross when he's being crucified, not even to comfort their own mother. And then magically in Acts 1, verse 14, we see, oh, the brothers are back, back involved. They're, they're praying with the disciples. They're eagerly waiting for the Holy Spirit and for the, the, the start of the church. What happened in that gap? Because there's a big transformation from not believing to all of a sudden, hey, we're, we're, we're praying, we're committed, we're involved. I think 1 Corinthians and Paul gives us exactly what happened. Paul kind of is going through this point where he's kind of going through a brief, like, four-line history of what happened um, involving Jesus. And this is what he says, For what I have received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the other twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Here it is. Then he appeared to James. Because we've already identified the apostles that they already have James in there. That's not included. This is a different James. James, the brother of Jesus. Then to all the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Because remember on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to Paul at that point. So we clearly see what happened to James. He was a non-believer, a skeptic, thought Jesus was a lunatic. Jesus appeared to him in the resurrected form, and that changed everything for James. He encountered the resurrected Jesus. And that's the key, guys. Anytime any one of us encounters the the resurrection, the risen Lord, our lives are going to be changed. That is the hope that we all experience. We're like, I was, I was desperate, I was lost, I was lost in my sin. And then I experienced Jesus and things changed. And that's what we see that happens with James in this story. But not only that, Jesus wants to show the rest of us that he is the light of the world too. He wants to roll back our darkness. He wants to be our hope. He is the resurrection. He is restoration. And he wants to restore our hope and help us believe in him. I think about this transition of James. Going from, hey, I don't believe, to I experienced Jesus in the resurrected form, and now I'm sold out. Because James had that big transformation. 
Not only did he just believe, he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. He ended up, you know, being in these huge councils fighting for like, you know, getting other people involved and connected and letting the Gentiles into the church and fully letting them being fully committed followers of Jesus Christ to the point that he wrote the book of James. And an interesting fact, that James teaching all throughout the book that we've been studying for the last couple of months, there's like, like exact parallels of what James is teaching in the book to what Jesus taught in his lifestyle. There's like 24 instances that are like just paralleled almost on top of each other. So we hit this big transformation. But I wonder like before James had this big transformation, what Jesus was thinking as he was preaching and teaching. And this is, this is just my speculation. This is umbrella of protection. I'm, I'm just making up stuff as I go along. Um, but I wonder if when Jesus was preaching on the lost coin or the lost sheep or the prodigal son, if he was thinking of his brother, that his brother didn't believe. His brother didn't accept and he was lost in his sin and Jesus knew that his brother didn't believe. And so as he was preaching and teaching the disciples, I wonder if he thought of his brother saying, man, I got all these people following me, but my brother doesn't. I don't know. Maybe he thought that, maybe he didn't. But it brings a little bit of power to that story saying, hey, we each know somebody that, that doesn't believe doesn't believe he's the hope, doesn't believe that he's the king, the Messiah, he's got our priest or our temple. He doesn't believe those things. And what made me think of that thing of it could be possibly, maybe, Bryce is making it up, uh, Jesus was thinking about James when thinking about those stories of the lost coin or the prodigal son, was the last couple of lines in the book of James. And it says this, in chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Because we know at some point, James wandered from the truth. He wandered from Jesus, believing that Jesus is the truth and the light. And guess who brought James back? It was Jesus. He appeared to him and said, hey, I'm the real deal. I'm the resurrection. I am the life. And he brought him back. James wandered. James didn't believe. James had announced. He had a hope, probably through his teaching, that he would miss in the God would send a Messiah. He just didn't believe Jesus was that person. But Jesus brought him back. And it was only by experiencing the resurrected Lord. Our hope for Christmas is twofold. One is, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is fulfilling those things. He is our high priest. He is our king. He is our temple. And so we can celebrate this at Christmas, that he is our hope. He's our hope for restoration. He's our hope for healing. He's our hope for forgiveness of sins. And we can be excited and embrace that. But secondly, there are others that we know that are far off from Christ. People that don't believe. That believe that the whole story of Christianity is about some lunatic or some liar. And they don't believe that he is the Lord. 
And our goal as Christians is to continue to pray for those individuals and maybe follow the example that we see in chapter 5. Is just We, we want to bring those people to experience the resurrected Lord. Experience Jesus who he really is. We want to bring them hope, the hope of Jesus. So I encourage you to keep praying for those who are lost, for those who don't believe. Because just like Jesus encountering with James, and just like James, all they need is an encounter with Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we, we are so grateful that you are our Messiah. You are our King. You are the Lord of Lords. God, you love us and you want to save and reduce. That is our hope. James didn't see it, Lord, at first. But then you had, a, had an encounter with him and you changed him. And we ask that you do that in our lives, Lord. That we come to you and as we pray and as we communicate, you change us and help us to believe and show us the truth and who you are. That you are our hope. But Lord, as we go into the world as well, as we encounter those around us, help us to seek out those that we can reveal Christ to them. Show them the truth of God and show them that they also can have hope in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As in his name we pray. Amen.